the big picture is that at our core, we're actually very wise. We're very organized. We're very productive. We're very creative. We're brilliant. And that's the core of who we are, which is in our mind and reflected in our biology of our brain and our body. But as a human, we are experimental. We are like an experiment every moment of every day. We don't know what's coming up in the next moment. We can anticipate, we can guess, we can all those things because we're used to certain things, but we're not 100% sure about anything in the next moment. We are designed to be messy or structured, I should say, to be messy. It's normal. It's part of how our brain and mind and body work, but we are designed or structured to manage the mess. So it's not a case, as you said, of, if we have a mess, it's the level of mess that we're in. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the show. That piece of wisdom was from Dr. Caroline Leaf. If you're familiar with Dr. Leaf's work, you probably know her podcast called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. She is a mental health expert, highly sought after. Since the early 80s, she's researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory. We're here today to talk about cleaning up our mental messes and explore a little bit about her new book called How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess, A Guide to Building Resilience and Managing Mental Health. Now, notice that in both of these, you know, her previous book and this one, it's not if we have a mental mess, right? It's that we have a mental mess and how we ought to think about cleaning it up. Just a couple of uh, bullet points in today's episode. We talk about unmanaged stress and how toxic it can be. We talk about the concept of a neurocycle. That is five science-backed steps for us to get to healthy mind management for ourselves and specifically for our kids. We talk about why social media curfews and bans actually won't protect your child from mental health issues and what you can do about it. Uh, implicit in a lot of this research, we talk about it both on you know on the kids' side and the adult side, but the reality is we know the damage that social media is doing. It's now, it's, it's science-based fact that this is making our mental health worse. We explore, again, what we can do about it. This episode is super valuable. If you appreciate mental health, uh, this episode is going to really, really shed some light on some interesting topics and things that you can do, some actionable insights here. Again, I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly and Dr. Caroline Leaf. Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Chase. I'm really looking forward to this. All right. So... One of the ways that I like to start off the show is by asking the guest just to orient our listeners who may be unfamiliar with your work. How do you describe uh, your body of work, your work career? We can get into some personal stuff later, but I'm mostly interested in just orienting our audience in your own words. How do you, how do you identify your work and what's the purpose and meaning behind it? Just get us, on, get us started here today, if you would. Absolutely. Well, Chase, it's great to be chatting to you. I love your show and you really get deep and dive deep. And so thank you for um, asking me this question. Um, do you have about six hours? <laughs> <laughs> we probably okay. don't have six, but we can take as long as you want. I'm, I'm very excited to to have this conversation. It's been a long time coming. I know we've we've been in touch with you and your team a couple of times throughout the years because your work's been very impactful on me. And I'm excited to share it with the, the community today. So we don't have six hours, but feel free to give, give us the long version. 
I'll give you, I'll give you the, the, the Cliff Notes version. Okay. Basically, I'm a psychoneurobiologist, and that means I work with the mind. I do research in the field of mind, brain, body, the whole mind-brain-body connection. That's the psychoneurobiology. Um, I currently still do clinical trials. I've been researching for almost 38, nearly 40 years now. Um, started back in the 80s. Um, I've done multiple degrees in the field of communication pathology, neuroscience, as part of neuroscience was in its infancy in the 80s. So it's more in my later years that I've done more work in neuroscience, but more psychoneurobiology. Mm. Um, so the neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience is very much around um, the brain and, and brain function. Um, cognitive neuroscience, looking at how the brain, what the brain does. And then psychoneurobiology looks at the link between the mind, the brain and the body, seeing them as quite distinct differences that between them and that connect together. So I started off my work in my early career working with people with traumatic brain injuries and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is injuries from sports, head injuries from repeated concussions, people with dementias, autism, learning disabilities, and then extreme trauma, people that had suffered, you know, sexual abuse and whatever, all you know, the traumas of life that can happen. And very early on, I um, was actually challenged as a student by one of our professors, our neuroscience professors, saying that the brain can't change. And, um, and that's what they believed in the 80s. In the 80s, it was, and that's when I did my first degrees, was that the brain, they felt, was this fixed organ. The mind, they saw separate, and the mind was changing, but the brain was fixed. So the whole thinking was that if the brain's damaged, well, that's it. You have to teach your patients to compensate. And it just didn't sound right. And I remember you know, putting up my hand in that lecture and just saying to that professor, you know, this can't be right because we are changing as humans all the time. So, and our mind is using our brain. So the brain must change. And he actually kind of sarcastically said, well, then go do research on it. So I said, okay. And he said, well, and I said, well, what's the most difficult and challenging area to do research on in this field? So he said, well, traumatic brain injury, because it used to be called closed head injury. Um, because there's such a there's no research on it because there's no point in doing research because once the brain's damaged it's damaged so you just got to do research on finding techniques to compensate and that just sounded so hopeless so I thought okay well in my innocence of being a young student I started researching and I haven't stopped and I did some of the first neuroplasticity research in our field back in the late 80s early 90s and I showed that um, basically showed that if you have trauma to your brain like from a traumatic brain injury mm. if you work your mind and you manage your mind and develop your mind your mind then naturally changes your brain because it's your mind that actually changes the brain the brain doesn't change itself the brain is not self-emergent like genes are not self-emergent they can't switch themselves on kind of like a light switch you know you have to go and switch the light on or operate it from your phone or your app or whatever but there's still a human that's driving it like ai as scared as everyone is of ai ai is still controlled by the human mind so um, that's the that's the direction that I went in to help people to understand the mind. I, I started studying, you know, what is the mind? What is a thought? What are memories? What can we build memories? So how do we build them? If we've had an experience, how can we reverse engineer that experience and make and learn to kind of live with it? And how can we increase intelligence? And it was all those questions that drove the early years of my research and still drive my research. And I practice for about 25 years um, across the field in, in all these things that I mentioned. I don't practice anymore because I, I don't actually have time. But um, <laughs> I usually, because I've decided that what's probably more beneficial is for me to take these systems and things that I've developed and research them more and put them into books so that to empower people to build their intelligence, build their productivity, understand 
as you so said, say, say quite often on your podcast, how, you know, it's up to us. We've got to, you know, we can't rely on all the external. We use the external, but we've got to, I'm paraphrasing you, but you spoke in one of your podcasts. Yes. It's from inside ourselves. We can't, and, and there's a definite awareness of people becoming more, after 40 years of people being driven to, you know, get more, get more, get all external focus for success is people are aware it comes back to what we've been saying for thousands of years, which is it comes from the inside. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to work on how can I empower people and get people on a path of empowerment to understanding how to manage their mental health, both in terms of building their brain, intelligence, creativity, et cetera, et cetera. And then also in terms of managing mental health, because if our mind is messy, our brain's messy, our body's messy, our life is messy. And that all kind of boil down to mind management. So that's what I continue to do in terms of the research, in terms of the um, application to books. I have an app called the NeuroCycle app, which you may be familiar with, um, which is takes all my, it's literally like me giving you therapy. And I walk people through the whole process I've developed and have all kinds of things added in. We constantly building more into that platform, which is great. So we want to make mental health from the aspect of dealing with issues plus growing um, resilience and productivity and so on in one platform that's accessible and affordable and scientific, um, yeah. not just a bunch of, you know, like, oh, this is nice stuff. And, you know, what is the science really saying about meditation and mindfulness? And what does it mean to go beyond that and all these kinds of things? So we have quite a big mission that's happening. Yes. I mean, just if you put a pin in that for a second, you, this has been a, a lifelong quest, right? You're talking about being early on as a student and now having been in practice for, you know, 25 some odd years, multiple books. I want to latch on to of all of the amazing sort of um, threads that you just offered us. I want to pull on one that was toward the end there where you spoke about our mental mess and mental health and, and, the mental mess is, you know, catchphrase in both of your books, your previous bestseller, well, both of your most recent works, because you've got a few books here, but this idea of cleaning our mental mess, right? This is, there's, it's folks, if you don't have this book, it's an essential read. It's more than 3,500 four-star reviews on Amazon. It's called cleaning up your mental mess, five simple scientifically proven steps to reduce anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking that, and now you've got a new book, which is one of the things I'd like to get to a little bit later in the show, specifically around kids, how to help your child clean up their mental mess. So what I want to hinge on is this idea of it's not if we have a mental mess, right? It's cleaning up your mental mess. There, in inherent in there is that we have a mess that needs cleaning. So my hope is that you can start us off uh, on our, on this particular thread of our conversation around why is it that our minds are messy, that we all have work to do to train this, you know, million, multi-million year old organ between our ears to work for us. Why do, why, why is it messy? Why doesn't just work like your elbow joint just works? I love that you've picked up on that. And it's it's a vital component of the work I do because as humans, we are messy and it's actually okay to be a mess. And I think one of the biggest things people often take away from what I say is that it's okay to be a mess. It's very much part of being a human. Our mind has different levels and the there's the in in sort of the big picture is that at our core we actually very wise, we very organized, we very productive, we very creative, we brilliant. 
And that's the core of who we are, which is in our mind and reflected in our biology of our brain and our body. But as a human, we are experimental. We are like an experiment every moment of every day. We don't know what's coming up in the next moment. We can anticipate, we can guess, we can all those things because we're used to certain things, but we're not 100% sure about anything in the next moment. And even when things happen, everything's kind of new. So we're constantly in a state of experimentation, which is messy. As a scientist of 38 years now, research is extremely messy and extremely complicated. And that's how we function as humans. And that is okay. The issue comes in where the messiness tipple, tips, if you think of a scale, and this you know, old-fashioned scale where you've got two sides and then you know, the two little plates and then you've got the thing in the middle balancing it. Generally, what we have is this kind of thing going on where there's a bit of messiness and then we kind of bring the messiness back and whatever. But sometimes if we don't manage the messiness, not sometimes, we are designed to be messy or structured, I should say, to be messy. It's normal. It's part of how our brain and mind and body work. But we are designed or structured to manage the mess. So we are supposed to be, you know, when this starts happening, we kind of recorrect and etc. So it's not a case, as you said, of if we have a mess. It's the level of mess that we're in. And we are all in different levels of mess at different times of our life. And like, if you think of messiness on a scale of one to 10, one would be the day-to-day -day irritating things like maybe your power internet goes down or your someone is driving stupidly in traffic or you know some little things that bug you um to the big stuff at 10 which would be nine and ten which would be you know traumas and abuse and war and racism and sexism and all these you know these big things and so all of us are living in a in a kind of sort of continuum of one to ten. And hopefully most of the time it's around a one, two, three. But some people have more of the eight, nine, tens than others. Most of us, at least once every five years or so, will have some sort of according to the research, some sort of level of trauma. Some people have that eight, nine, ten trauma more often. So it's different for every human. The fact is that we're living in this messiness. And the fact is that our mind is pretty much everything. Without your mind, you're dead. And so to understand messiness, we need to understand that mind is not brain. Mm. Brain is a physical, structural substance. I have a little model of a brain over here. Your brain is only doing what your mind tells it to do. So your mind is this complex but simple concept to understand. If we kind of put all, our, all of our um, sort of thoughts about um, what mind and brain are aside for a moment, um, to understand the messiness, the concept of cleaning up your mental mess, think of mind as being your aliveness, your ability to experience life, relationships, go through the day from the time you wake up, sleep at night, dreams, nightmares, work, relationships, everything you do as a human. And you're able to do this conversation, listening to this or watching this, whichever way you're doing listening and watching. Life is driven by mind. Your mind, because of your mind, you're able to experience life. If you were dead, you wouldn't be experiencing life. So your mind is, in the most basic, simple terms, your aliveness. It has a psychological component, which is your ability to think, feel, and choose in response to life. And it has a physical component, which we, which is research around quantum physics, classical physics, electromagnetic light, um, waves, auditory sound waves, gravitational fields, all that complex stuff. The stuff that makes your blood flow, your then you do an EEG on your on your brain, an ECG on your heart, all of that you're not going to see. The responses you see in that kind of equipment, fMRIs, et cetera, 
of picking up mind in action in brain and body. If you're dead, they don't read anything because there's nothing going on and the brain and body are disintegrating. So it's your aliveness. Very often the mind is considered the hard question of science. And I always, I, I think I'm the only person in the world who's ever said, who ever says this because everyone thinks it's, I don't know, everyone sees <laughs> mind crazy, crazy. But I say that the mind is the most obvious and simple question of science because that is your ability to even ask the question or make the statement that the mind is the hard question of science shows the, the most obvious thing that's actually staring you in your face. Your ability to ask that question is your mind in action. So Self, wanna... Self-reflexively true is that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So if we want to understand mind, we just have to look at us, ourselves, how we function. And that's evidence of mind and messiness is very much part of that and very normal. Where it becomes problematic is if the messiness, if we don't recalibrate, if we don't manage our minds. And the managing of our minds helps us to then do this recalibration thing. So therefore, things like depression and anxiety are very normal, very good, very healthy, very much part of being a human and are filled with messages and information to help us recalibrate. But if we don't ignore, if we ignore them, if we try and suppress them, then we're going to tip the scale. And instead of mind being something, I mean, depression being something that is actually informative to us managing the mess, it then can get, it works against us. And that's when people feel overwhelmed. And that's when we start talking about mental illness. And that's what I have a huge problem with, because to call something like that when the scales tipped mental illness with the implications that are tied to this, that in our current day and age of the biomedical model, the biopsychiatric model, which looks very much in a neuroreductionistic way at, oh, your brain is the problem making you depressed or your genes are the problem making you depressed or your chemicals in your brain are the problem making you depressed is very, very unrealistic and unscientific, but is very dominant and leads to taking, leads to a lot more problems and in, impacts people's mental health in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. And I say that with a lot of confidence, having been in the field for so long and having tracked the research, my own plus researchers in the field that show that if we look at depression and anxiety as these medical things in a very neuroreductionistic or brain-focused way only and forget about the human, we're going to land up with a problem. And we are. We're sitting with the worst main mental health situation when it comes to children, adolescents, and adults that we've pretty much ever faced. And it's not that there's some new virus like COVID making us more sick or something um, in terms of mental health. That's a different category of, it's like a different um, way of looking at it. It's It's a different illness, physical illness like COVID virus is a completely different category to mental health, yet it's all been lumped under the same thing. So illness is the umbrella term currently, and under illness you have COVID virus, you have cardiovascular disease, you have diabetes, and you have depression and anxiety and all that stuff. And that's where the problem has really come in and led to a crisis of mismanagement of mind. Mm. And that will then only keep us stuck with a scale in the wrong side. And therefore people not get are not getting better, they're getting worse because of the philosophy that we brought to the table, the zeitgeist we brought to the table, or the the category of description um, that we've brought to the table to describe messiness. Well look yeah let me I need I want to clarify there just just drill in just a, a second here. So can you be clear about what 
where do you draw the line? Like there's this categories of, of illness and earlier, just 90 or maybe two minutes, 90 seconds or two minutes ago, you said in the same phrase that, that things like depression and anxiety can be good for us. And I think that's very, it's obviously wise, but give us like, how is that possible? You talked about signs and signals for us to change. And how is that linked to this concept of mental illness? Like go in a little bit more, a little deeper there around how those things are related and make some distinctions for us because it's, you know, to, to us, of course, mental illness is a thing. We look at it, we hear about it all the time in the news. You know, we talk on the backside of COVID. Sure. Mental illness, mental illness, like, great. You just hear it all the time. But I want to understand the distinctions because it's when we can actually slice this a little more finally and not lump it all together that we can start to solve the challenges that we're facing. Exactly. You've nailed on the head. Taking your last statement, we, we, uh, we, separating them is how we solve the problem versus putting them all together. And 50, 60 years ago, we separated them. And then we blended them. So for the last 40, 50, 60 years, specifically the last 40 years, we have really collapsed the concept of um, illness as one category and mental health under that category versus it being separate before. So let's talk about this in a little bit more detail. Um, The easiest way to understand this is maybe to just talk about the fact that think of a maybe of a child who is or an adult who has experienced extreme trauma as a child. And uh, maybe they were in a war-torn country. Maybe they were abused physically and sexually. Maybe they were, and I'm thinking of a a story of one of my actual clients, patients, when I was still practicing, who who lived in in war-torn South Africa at the time of when the apartheid still was very strong there, terrible system. And um, this person had lived in, in an, they were called them townships. They had, this person had been physically abused, mentally abused, didn't have any of the care that this nurtured, nurturing child should have, a child should have in terms of nurturing. Long story short, grew into being an adolescent and young adult that was not very savory, causing a lot of problems, drug dealer, kind of perpetuating the same story. And, and I happened to connect with this person when I was doing work in that area and um, this person came to meetings that I had held, and and at the end of the this, this person would walk into into these into any of these areas where I walked, and see the Red Sea would part. They were terrified of this person. This person was a problem, and I didn't know this the very first time that this person happened to walk into one of my meetings that I was teaching a whole group of students and teachers how to learn and how to think and emotions and all this stuff that I do. And this person went to the back of the room and I'm telling the story because the story will help us understand the distinction, the difference. Um, and as I was, I taught, I would teach for like four or five hours and this person just sat, sat staring and it was almost like I could feel daggers, you know, when you can feel something. Yes. <laughs> I leave here, I definitely need an escort out of here because <laughs> I've been out there alive. I mean, that's literally how I felt. And this the reaction that this person created. Anyway, at the end of the five, I think it was nearly five hours of teaching this concept, one of the leaders and teachers that had stood up and said, who wants to thank Dr. Leaf? And this person ran to the front and everyone thought, oh my gosh, something's going to happen. And I honestly thought this person was running to the front to attack me. And this young man was, this young man was sobbing, held up, had a pen in his hand. So everyone thought he was going to actually stab me, but he didn't. He ran up, stood next to me, put his arm around me. At this stage, everyone thought I was going to be dead. 
Um, and he actually then turned to me sobbing and saying, thank you, Dr. Leaf. You have taught me what it means to use my mind. And a whole long talk later, we were all, it was very emotional. And what he had, he just kind of told his story. And at the end of it, what it was is that no one had told him that trauma could affect how you function and how you show up is based on, your, you know, what you've gone through. And, and I mean, I'm talking to people where they, this, the English is their second language. So I made it really simple and used a lot of imagery. And, you know, there was all different ages there. And long story, long, long, long story short, this young man ended up studying all these systems and going back to school and becoming a pillar of his community. And, you know, and I can tell you a lot of stories like that. Okay, so what do we learn from that in terms of your question? How do we distinguish the two? The behaviors that this young man was, was demonstrating would have been in the current system, would have been labeled as mental illness, would have been labeled as ADHD, schizophrenia, psychosis, because of all the things that he was doing and experiencing in his life that made him terrifying to people and the things that he'd got caught up in and he would have been medicated and everything. Meanwhile, that wouldn't have been the solution. So thank goodness he didn't have that added to the story because then he would have been dealing with a lot of those issues that are traumatic on top of the issue. Once he understood through a period of intervention, et cetera, that this was because of his upbringing and how he could actually learn to manage his mind and he could learn to change and learn and build his brain and develop his intelligence and productivity and detox and deal with the traumas of the past, he became a pillar of community. So therefore, the one angle was to look at the context of this young man's story in the context of his life and his environment and the impact of racism and trauma on his life and help him to process and understand that the way he was showing up, which he didn't even like, but that was the life he'd fallen into, was not who he was, but was because of what he had experienced. That, that transformed his ability to be empowered to start the healing process, which was dual. One was to get re finish his education, learn a new skill, get out of drug dealing, um, learn to rebuild his trust in the community, learn to understand himself and rebuild his own identity, etc. which was using the system that I've developed to build his brain plus to detox his brain. And the system that he used was the exact system in the books that you described. Mm. And it's not even, that was years ago. So I've advanced it so much since then, but it really was an experience for me that is one of many, many, many hundreds of stories that encouraged me to continue pursuing this. And so in terms of disentangling, what we did over the last 40 years, we learned about the brain and we developed in the mid nineties, the MRI machine was, the technology was discovered. Brilliant. Now we could see inside the brain, such an advance in the 90, late eighties and early nineties, I had a CT scan and I had a, and I had um, EEG, but we weren't even using it. Like, I mean, I didn't even use it then, but we were looking at a fixed sort of almost like an image of the brain. It didn't tell us what was going on. So with the advances, we got so excited and we needed to because now we know so much more about the brain. The brain is so much more than a computer. The brain, that's why AI is not actually a threat. It's just something that can add to our intelligence because the brain is incredibly, the design is, is so complex. It's so, and is meant to design to function in the most optimal way. But the brain doesn't make itself work. The brain is managed by something. It has a manager, and that is the mind. And so in the advance of brain technology, the two words got subsumed, and mind and brain became one thing. So when people talk about the brain, they do, the mind and brain in current languaging, 
it's very often seen as the same thing. And then the neuroscience on the brain got so caught up with all these exciting advances and looking inside the brain and these fMRI imagery and and just like the QEG, which is the technology I use, we can print out head maps and show you what's going on, you know, the re response of your brain. The distinction and blurred. And instead of seeing that this is a look from a 20-floor building at the response in the brain electromagnetically and so on, versus this is, um, it's not a direct magnifying glass into how you are thought, what is thought to you, what you are actually thinking. It doesn't tell us about how you feel how you feel in this very moment it can just show us that your brain is responding and right now i can tell you now if we had you linked up to for example qeg machine we would see bursts of gamma because you're a very productive person you're into creativity you're responding to this i could just see by your responses and because i know how you a little bit about how your show runs i know that you'd have a lot of gamma and it, and it would be bursts of gamma and bursts of high beta now if i was using the medical model I could look at your brain scan. Now, and I'm just, I haven't looked at it. I mean, I'm not, I'm just. Um, <laughs> I don't know I, if I want you to look at my brain scan. <laughs> no, very positive. I could say one of two things. I could take a biomedical approach and say, hey, we don't want long-term high gamma and we don't want high bursts of, of beta for too long because that means that you've got a high anxiety and some kind of mental illness. In other words, what the current model does is it looks at looks for little markers that are neurobiological and says that this is what a disease brain looks like. This is what a schizophrenic brain looks like. This is what a damaged brain looks like. And it's not accurate because a person that is highly productive can have exactly the same pattern as a person who is in a high state of anxiety. And in other words, you can't see what is stimulating that brain response. The only way you can see it is by talking to the person. And in this case, we're having a great conversation versus that young man's story who was in a state of high anxiety from, the, you see what I'm saying? Yes. So we can't look inside the brain like we can if someone's got diabetes. We have the tools to be able to test for diabetes, let's say type 1, know that it's an insulin problem that's an issue in the pancreas and have, so we can diagnose, which means from the symptoms, we can track the biological cause and we can have a medication that is targeted to that specific cause. Medicine does that with precision and is increasing all the time. So it works for the physical brain and the physical body, but it doesn't work for your stories of your life. We can't collapse that young man's story into one label and say he's a behavioral problem, he's a schizophrenic, he's a whatever, um, psychopath, whatever a label, because it doesn't even begin to acknowledge the story. So that's what's happened. That's a long way of explaining. That. No, but it's very helpful though. I think this, the idea that there's a story that's incorporated that historically, again, if you just go raw science, looking at, at data, I think the word marker is really effective. You see a marker for, you know, insulin resistance that will tell you one thing, but if you if you looked at these scans and the, the, the information that's coming out of the mind brain, you actually only get a piece of the picture and it's it's through understanding the stories that you are able to form a bigger picture so how then how then can we reliably take stories and integrate them into our our healing because we all have we've there's so many stories that we tell ourselves that aren't true Right. So there's a little bit of a paradox that, that seems to emerge when we 
I mean, I love the idea, right? We have this, we have this mind, this brain, and we need to manage, you know, the mind needs to manage the brain and we've got markers. They're untrue by themselves. We need the stories that we tell ourselves to complete the picture, but how do we capture accurate stories? How does that role in, what does that, what role does that play in our healing rather? Yeah, that's such a brilliant question. And just in terms of the, can can I answer this in two parts? Can I please? I, yeah, please. Okay. The the marker because I'm going to get to that and explain exactly how to distinguish between the stories, because and I'll give a hint. And the hint is that um, ruminations and intrusive thoughts and depression and anxiety and panic attacks are your new best friend. Now that's no one's probably heard that before. And if you look at them like that, you'll do it different. You'll start finding the accuracy of your story. So hang, hold on to that for a moment. Okay. And the research that, and I publish on my research too. So we just released a paper two months ago and we've got another two under, under review and we've got another two coming. So I do a lot of, um, a lot of the research I've been doing over the last five years. We're now busy putting all the papers together and publishing. So my most recent paper, what we do is we look at I'm going to say this as simplistically as, as possible. The concept of looking for a biomarker for mental health, which is what we've, you know, you've picked up on and you mentioned, is a key mark, a key um, concept of the biomedical model. As I said, works beautifully for basic physical problems in the brain and the body, like diabetes or brain tumor or something. But when it comes to mental health, it's not so simple so when people talk about labeling like when people diagnose like from using the dsm it sounds like and the public have been led to believe that you have depression because you have a chemical imbalance and i mean that theory was disproved back in the 70s it was never actually proved but it's become the 95 percent of people think well if i have depressions because i have a chemical imbalance that was never proved and has been analyzed and reanalyzed all the scientific papers around that. To, and it was confirmed in a paper that had 20 million hits, not mine, a colleague of mine, um, 20 million views in it, like a month or something, which is one of the most viewed papers, because people couldn't believe that, oh, isn't my depression from a chemical imbalance? No, it's not. You may get a chemical imbalance when you feel depressed, but that's a result. It's not the cause, it's the response inside the brain. And it's one of a multitude of very complex responses. So it's not as simple as just a little chemical imbalance causing you to be depressed or more susceptible. So what actually we need to look at is to get this accuracy of the story, we need to look at the marker. So yes, the technology is great, it's important. I use QEG, but when we see a certain pattern we're not going to say that that pattern is a depressed brain. A lot of scientists will say things like the organ of, the, um, of, of a cardiovascular surgeon is the heart. So when they're studying heart problems, they look at the heart. Then they'll say the organ of mental health is the brain. So to study the, to study the mental health, you've got to study the brain. It's totally wrong because the mind is embodied. It's in the brain and the body. You're, if you have 37 to 100 trillion cells and every single experience is stored in the brain as a network and it's that looks like a tree and it's stored in a change in the actual skeleton of the cell and the dna of the cell in terms of epigenetics so we have multiple places and it's also stored in the gravitational fields of the mind so it's much more complicated than just looking at the brain and looking at the brain with a brain scan of any type is like standing on a 30 or 40 floor building and looking at people down below in the in the street and you see that they're moving around and they maybe their arms are moving and there's a cluster of people and but you can't 
see exactly what the expressions are on their faces or what they're talking about. So that's how it's just telling us, oh, they're having a fight. They seem happy. They're running. You know, it's just the basic, you're seeing a basic response. So if we're going to look at something, what we what we look at is, is a whole psychoneurobiological approach. So we'll first look at the person's story. What is, what's going on in your life? We'll look at self at, at certain psychological measures that are scientifically accurate to look that that have been measured to develop to evaluate a person's ability to self-regulate. So that's all the sort of psychological, the story plus some sort of measurement tools. But even alone, you can't take a, one measurement tool and say that's a person's function. You've got to put that with multiple and you've got to put that with a story. So you've got to look at most important what are you what are you saying and how does that go with how you self-regulate. Then you then you can look at the impact in the brain and see, oh okay, so this is how their story is running at the moment. So in the moment, this is what the brain looks like because your brain will change in 10 minutes. You can have a great, be feeling awful, have a scan, have a great conversation with your therapist or your friend or your spouse or something, and your brain will change immediately. And you can go from having a diseased brain to a healthy brain, but they don't see that because the, 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 the scan captured the disease so-called disease parts. It's not a disease part, it's a shift. The brain keeps changing. So we have to look at it over time. So we then would look at the psychological stuff, the story, the measures, we'd look at the brain at that time, and we'll look at certain biomarkers that are established um, as being linked to people that are in high stress, but also can't be used alone. So for example, we all know about cortisol. Cortisol will raise, will get too high if people are stressed. Things like prolactin is a hormone that's very linked to how people are managing stress in both males and females. And when it goes above a certain level, we can't say it cause it's it's we can't say it's the cause, but we can see is the person under extreme chronic stress. And generally the link has been made. So we'll look at those kind of things, homocysteine, cortisol, prolactin, telomeres. We look at telomeres, which are the ends of chromosomes, which um, are involved in cell division. And we're making 800,000 to a million cells every second. So if those if the telomeres are, and they, they get shorter all the time, but then they've got to rebuild. So if our mind is managed, the telomeres can stay healthy and we can have just a natural aging happening versus telomeres shortening too soon, which then affects our cells, which then affects our body, which then affects our physical and mental health too. So we look at telomeres. So we look at a triangulated approach, which sounds such a weird thing, but we'll look at the person's story. We'll look at the, what the brain is saying in response to the story. And we'll look at what is the body saying in response to that. And so we're finding, you know, we look at this in many different ways and um, in many different combinations. And what we see consistently is that um, if you are using this approach, you can help a person to understand that my body's responding and my brain is responding to the messiness of my mind that we spoke about. And that's not who I am, but it's like that because of, and if I manage my mind, can I change? So we show that in cycles of, um, and there's a very reason, strong reason why I'm going to say what I'm about to say, scientific reason, in cycles of 63 days or nine weeks, more or less, we see major changes happening in all the psychoneurobiology. So as a person is learning to recognize, let's take that young man, as the person is working the first few weeks of working through seeing your traumas of why you are like this and facing what you've maybe suppressed, you will feel worse. A lot of work that's going on in your brain, a lot of that will be reflected in, in the brain patterns that we see in the psychology, in the body. 
And there's a massive shift that's happening in the first sort of three weeks that is um, a person coming to terms with facing the issue. So very often a person will feel worse mm -hmm. before they get better, which is normal. Think of a surgery. You go and get cut up to get healed. So when you're training physically, you, your muscles are very sore before you get fit. It's all those principles operating. Same thing in the mind. It's going to get sore before it gets better. And we see the big soreness happens around this first three weeks. And then after that, we got to chunk things down. And after that, the balance of another two cycles of 63, uh, two cycles of 21 days, so another six weeks. So it's the first three weeks and then another six weeks after that um, is more of a stabilization phase. So things calm down, in other words, in the next six weeks where we then stabilize this new thing that we've learned and our body calms down. So we see massive changes in people's, we see this peak happening. A, um, a learning taking place where there's lots of like, stuff going on, people feeling more depressed, but the depression's different. Now the depression is a recognition of a signal that something happened and you're grieving, which is normal. If you have suppressed something and now you're seeing it, you need to be depressed. It's a normal reaction. It's, it's, it's a very healthy response because you are grieving for what you've gone through and you need to go through that grieving in order to reorganize the networks of the brain and, and the mind brain body connection. Then you get to the point, okay, this is what I'm grieving. How can I now live with this? Where can I find my level of peace? And that's where the second six weeks is so important to work through that. And there's, there's a very systematic process that you go through in this very organized time. And, and that's the science of, of habit change that I've done a lot of work on as well, mm. which is very necessary for complex mental health behavior changes to happen. It's not going to happen with a technique or a trick or whatever, that kind of thing. So having laid that foundation to tell the ruminations, intrusive thoughts, depression, all these things that I've said are our new best friend, how do we get to the accuracy of our story? Well, first of all, by in a very kind and compassionate way towards ourselves, acknowledging that depression and anxiety are signals, they're not diseases. There's not something wrong with you. They're one of four categories of signals. In depression and anxiety would fall under what we'd call the emotional warning signal category. And it's a warning signal, or you could take the word warning away if it worries you. It's a signal. And what does the signal do? It gives you information. So if you look at how you're showing up in your life in these four categories in a non-judgmental way with kindness and compassion and say to yourself, this is not who I am. This is how I'm showing up because of something. And I'm going to describe how I'm showing up. I'm going to talk about my story in existence now to try and understand it in this way where I'm standing back and observing myself, moving into what we call the wise mind or in science terms, the non-conscious which is where our higher levels of intelligence and 24-7 quantum action is happening that's um, enabling us to be brilliant humans. We can, we can train ourselves to be consciously aware of our non-conscious state and also consciously aware of observing ourselves in action. And that's a skill we can develop and train in meditation and mindfulness and all those things contribute towards that. So things like meditation, mindfulness, breathing, all of that category, I put under brain preparation very important part of the process, which we know there's so much spoken about it, so I don't have to belabor the point. But essentially, that is like preparing. It's tuning your psychoneurobiology into a state of healing and empowering you to start the process. Then, it's, then you would start trying to distinguish the truth of the story by describing what is the story. You know, how are you showing up? Because the story presents itself as something. So what, like that young man, his childhood 
made him show, um, led to him showing up as pretty much a drug lord that was extremely cruel and got caught up in terrible things and um, was, but still had this hunger to learn and would keep coming back to the school environments. But, you know, the whole story that I explained, that's not who he was. It was how he was showing up. So you start by telling that story by how do I show up? What is it, how I'm showing up? What are my emotions? Anger for him, for example, extreme anger. Um, behaviors, threatening others, speaking in a really scary way, all this stuff. So behaviors is the second signal. First is emotions. I'm just giving a- Yeah, this is, oh yeah, this is, please go on. Um, and then um, bodily sensation. I remember asking this young man saying, okay, so anger, you know, behaviors, how you're functioning in the community, the drug lord stuff and scaring everyone and whatever. Um, how does that feel in your body? And I remember him saying that I feel like my body is like a tight, wound up, String, I didn't even use this word string. I'm trying to remember the word he used. That tight wound up, um, so it was like an instrument that he described. It's an instrument, an African instrument. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, and that I'm going to explode and it's going to break and fall apart and shatter. That he kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but that was more, and this is going back 25 years now. This is a long time ago. Um, anyway, and so that, in other words, I said, okay, so your anger and the way you're behaving is that's what it feels like in your body. Yes. And okay, how are you looking at life? Fourth, fourth one, perspective. Life is terrible and I have to fight to survive. That was his perspective. And this is obviously I'm giving you an extreme yeah, version. Yeah, of course. That was unpacked and so on. So in other words, four signals, emotional signals which are the depression the anxiety the frustration the anger the happy the joy it's good it's all of them both all sides every emotion is good because it's telling us something obviously good in the sense of it's informational obviously happy is going to be better than than anger i mean than frustration or something in terms of how it works for you but it's still you've got to take the frustration energy generated from frustration and you've got to know how to manage that to make it work for you to bring it back into balance and that kind of thing so that's the emotional warning signal then you get your physical warnings uh, the, the behavioral what you say and what you do how you're saying and doing it bodily sensation where you feel it in your body because every single every single experience we're having including this discussion now is not only wiring in your brain as a network that looks like a tree but is also wiring into every cell of your body as a change in what we call the microtubules of your cell and your epigenetics, which is around the genes, complex stuff, but it's there. And then also in the gravitational fields and the electromagnetic fields of the mind, there's a change. So think of like in Zencaster, we can see that little line going up and down. <laughs> That's kind of like how you can, the mind, you know, it's, we saw these patterns. So it's physical. So that's then um, the, the physical sensation. And then there's the perspective signal. How is this influencing how you're looking at life in the moment? So based on that, taking you can take your story and you can describe that. Then you can say, why? Focused reflection. Why? Who, what, when, where, why? Why am I showing up? So you then start taking those four categories and you start unpacking them. Then you want to do that quite all sort of... Um, talking but then very soon as soon as possible within a few minutes you want to get into writing and the writing's not a journal not an organized it's the first phase of writing is very much a mind dump grab what those signals are grab what you've reflected on and put that into 
written form and there's different systems I've developed to do that that really tap into the deep insight level and so on and unconscious level but basically it's pour down whatever get it all down and that is incredibly informative because it opens up all these things that you may not have even seen were there before just by putting it down notice I'm saying do this do this do this there's very specific steps because the brain mind body connection our psychoneurobiology is very organized. It's very sequential. It's it's a system. The brain is a system. The mind has got to drive the system. Like you work a computer in a certain way, like, like coding is done in a certain way, there's steps involved. You must think of the brain in that same way and the mind-brain connection within each of these five steps that I'm busy describing. And I've so far described the first three to gather awareness of the four signals to reflect and to start writing. Within each of those is a multitude of many things that are happening on a psychoneurobiological level. So if you skip from step one to step five, you miss out a whole part of the process. So your transformation won't, won't be as effective. You, you're going to kind of be stuck and frustrated because you know you've started the work. So that's why I stress you've got to go through all five steps. Mm -hmm. You've got prior to that, you've got to prepare your brain to tune in the brain prep and you've got to do this in batches of time. Otherwise, the rewiring doesn't happen. It takes time to break down the toxic experience. This is another plant versus this one, which is the healthy experience versus the toxic experience. It takes time to deconstruct and reconstruct this. It's not going to happen in one day, four days, 21. It happens in multiple cycles of 63, depending on the complexity. So if it's a fairly simple thing, one cycle of 63 to 66 days may do the trick. But otherwise, you may need multiples. So I've had some patients who've had extreme psychological trauma and sexual abuse and that kind of stuff and whatever. Like this young guy, it took him a couple of years before things were, he felt like he was starting to move forward in his life. And mm -hmm. in that, you know, you're still moving forward, but it's, you know, and then there's a lifetime of work after that because it's an ongoing thing, but to sort of crack the back of the, the basics. So it's not like everything's fixed in one 63-day cycle. It's depending on the level of severity on that continuum of one to 10. Mm. Once so, you've no, just one question, and I just interject this point. So this, this very specific system, systemic approach, if you will, to healing is, is I'm going to make sure people understand, you, you can have access to this research at drleaf.com at specifically we're talking about really the last two books that you've done, right? Cleaning up your mental mess and then how to help your child clean up their mental mess. These are, these are systemic approaches to healing that are systems and programs that you have run and manage and are available out there in the world. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. So okay. they, Everything that I do is scientific, as I think people can get that. It's also clinically researched. So it's not just done in a lab. I don't work in a lab. I do, I, I do work in real life with real people. So it's an, and so in a clinical setting plus in a research setting. So the systems I've developed, yes, this exact, these five steps, yep. this line of how to do it with examples are in the, in the, this book is any, anyone from 12 up can work through this book. This is anything from two through 12, but this is written for parents to help children. And yep. I've actually found people that have been um, using this already have found that it helps them. The adults, it's easy to understand. The two together really work well. I have an app as well called the NeuroCycle app mm -hmm. where I'm literally me giving you therapy. I walk you through the exact system in 63 days. There's meditation activities. There's what I call brain preparation activities, as I've been mentioning, mm -hmm. and the 
concentration activities and there's many neurocycles. So let's say that in the moment, let's say you're in a work environment, for example, and you're having a meeting or you've just surrounded by toxic people in your work environment and it's just throwing you off. And how do you deal with that? Or in a relationship or in family, whatever, the toxic people, there's a mini neurocycle, how to deal with toxic people. And I walk you through the five steps in like 15 minutes or 13 minutes. Yeah. Maybe having a panic attack. There's a mini neurocycle where you can just press play and I walk you through that. So yeah, there's multiple resources. Yeah. And I and I say this, I interject here just because there's so there's so much dense information in our conversation that I really want people to be able to go. I mean, this is so well organized. You talked about how well organized the brain actually is, despite how it doesn't feel like that, that it responds so well to this the structure that you've created uh, through, through the research. So I just want to make, make sure people have those resources. Also, you've got a podcast, but do you feel like, do you wanted to put a bow on that? I just wanted to interject there. So in case people were tracking for, we're tracking where we are. So go ahead and put a bow on that. We're, there's a handful of steps that we're going through as a part of this healing process. Go ahead. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. It's actually a great point to interject because yes, it can be overwhelming. So the neurocycle is a very simple system, but it's very complex. It's very complex stuff. And it's called the neurocycle and it's in all those resources and it's five steps. Gather awareness, reflect, write, recheck and active reach. Before you do the five steps, you do the brain preparation and brain preparation is any kind of decompression, meditation, breathing. You can do whatever you like. I give a whole lot of examples in both in all my resources of how you can do it. And I walk you through it as well. And we're adding into the app, we're adding in a parent program, we're adding in, you're going to be adding in all kinds of things like stories um, to help that you can, that just help you um, go to sleep, to help you with, get your mind in a, in a great space, um, how to use it for sleep. I mean, there's just, it's it's a platform that is where you could literally, every situation you can imagine using the neurocycle in. So to put a bow on it, I describe that you'd gather awareness of the four signals, you'd reflect on the four signals, and you'd dump that into, uh, write it all over, you know, get a journal, some sort of a book that you can keep and date it. And you just, whatever comes up, you just pour it out. Very important because that is forcing the non-conscious that is the biggest part of you that's infinite. Mm -hmm. The conscious mind is very tiny. It's only about 1% of how you function. The, the non-conscious is pretty much 100%. And we have this, these periods of consciousness when we awake. But it's it's um, it's very important. It's very it's 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 where we create and it, it's where we consciously aware of creation. But the work's a lot of the work is being done, the driving force, et cetera, has been done on the non-conscious. The whole key to true productivity, creativity, healing, et cetera, is to get the two to talk together. Mm. And that's the conscious to talk to the non-conscious through the subconscious. So I'm not talking about the unconscious. The unconscious <laughs> is when you're sleeping or when you've been knocked up with an anesthetic or a baseball bat, hopefully not. But that's another, that's a state. People often talk about the unconscious and the programs running in the unconscious. That's not actually accurate. There are no programs running. There are networks, alive, dynamic networks that look like trees that are active and biological and firing and driving. And um, in the non-conscious, unless they are managed by the non, uh, unless the conscious talks to the non-conscious, then and and you work through using the neurocycle system, and you can use any techniques within that. These this kind of thing can continue to 
drive you. And um, what happens is that if we don't pay attention to, to the signals that these generate, we can get worse, we can tip that scale. So one of the things that the non-conscious does with the conscious mind, which the system trains you to tune into, is your non-conscious is on your side. So it's always scanning to find the things that are disrupting your physical and mental health and how you're functioning as a person. And it sends signals through from the non-conscious through the subconscious. So the subconscious is a bridge or a portal or a doorway into the conscious mind. And that's why I keep emphasizing with the neuroscience, what you're doing is you're paying attention to those signals that have come from the non-conscious. So if I pay attention to them, they've come from there. If I pay attention, I can then track back and take myself into the non-conscious. And what will I find? I'll find the thought that they're attached to. And a thought is a whole is a tree-like structure that is made of memories. And the memories are the data of the experience, the root being the source, the origin, with all of the details, which are the memories. And then the processing is the tree trunk and the branches are the interpretation and how it's playing out in your life and how you see yourself. So by observing the signals and training ourselves to, through step one and two, the gather and the reflect, we pull this into the conscious mind. So think of it almost like there's four balloons attached to this. So as I pay attention to my emotions in the way I've been describing it that I do in the, in the resources, um, the emotions, the behaviors, the bodily sensations and the perspective, I pull this up. Soon, and we know from neuroscience, as soon as we become consciously aware of something from the non-conscious, this becomes weakened. When these branches of protein, chemical, quantum structures are um, when we're conscious of them, they become weakened, which means that they can be changed. They become vulnerable to change. When we're not aware of them, they're not vulnerable to change. They're causing problems and our non-conscious is forever saying, hey, pay attention, pay attention. So that's where increased levels of depression are stronger signals coming from this. It's your non-conscious saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. Pay attention to this depression. Pay attention to this rumination. Pay attention to this intrusive thought. Pay attention to this addiction, behavior. These are, you know, look at them because if you look at them, you control them. You're empowered to then find out what and deconstruct and reconstruct internally. And that's pretty much what this process is doing. So step by step three, you have dumped all this down. By step four, you're now looking at what you have dumped down to try and say, okay, what happened? How am I going to make sense of this? What is the antidote? What are the triggers? What is the pattern? What can I do about this? And this is very often where maybe some level of support is needed. So if it's an mm -hmm. extreme type of trauma, that's where this can often give you insight, hey, I need a therapist just to walk me through this process um, and to help me with step four, which is this reconstruction process. And then you, you end off with an act of reach. Your brain and your conscious mind get tired. That's why we have to sleep. We sleep to regenerate our physical, but we also sleep to regenerate the conscious mind and to regenerate the brain. They run out of energy like a cell phone. So if you keep forcing an issue, if you keep on driving and doing this for too long, you will be exhausted. So you work on batches of time. So if you're sitting and working on a pattern in your life and you're working every day for 63 days, you the first 21 days, you only work for 15 to 45 minutes max, and then you stop. And you stop yourself with your active reach. And your active reach is, okay, therefore, I've done this in these four steps. This is what I've learned today. What can I do today in this moment to get me through the rest of today? And you, whatever that is, it's maybe a statement like, hey, it's okay to be messy. And then maybe you, and then I always recommend visualize something beautiful, playing with your puppy or something. And just keep that as an anchor. Then as you, then you move into the day. And every time you're tempted to go back and get stuck there, you can then, 
hey, I, you, you remind yourself, you bring that statement up and you say, I'm working on this. I'm getting there. I'm going to sort this out. It's okay. This is not who I am. And you visualize the puppy or whatever. And that just helps train yourself to not spend hours exhausting yourself mm. because when mentally we're going to go down the rabbit hole of negativity and we're going to make ourselves worse so that's kind of so you can do the neurocycle for big stuff over time like the story i explained you can also do it in the moment in 10 seconds 30 seconds if you're in a meeting and you just need and you get freaked out or you're in a conversation with a loved one and they say something that triggers you instead of reacting you can breathe in for three counts out for seven that takes 10 seconds It'll calm down your neurophysiology. You can quickly gather awareness by acknowledging to yourself. You're still looking at that person or you've looked away. I feel triggered and mad. My tummy is tight or my shoulders are tightening. I'm saying, oh, no, perspective, oh, no, not again. Um, and behavior, I'm about to snap. Just quick four sentences. Why? This has happened before. I'm being triggered. You can't write down in that moment because you're in the situation. You visualize. You imagine you're holding up a movie camera. And you visualize yourself. That visualization will create what we call genetic writing. It will still make changes in the brain. Um, and you visualize yourself in that scenario, watching yourself. And that will then trigger other scenarios, like a, a camera pans to, you know, sometimes movies move back and forth. But like that everywhere, it, it, that film, everything all at once, everywhere, whatever it's called. Yeah. It's kind of like moving back and forth. You can do that very quickly in the moment where you can look at the situation, look at yourself, look at yourself reacting and recall it trigger event or part of it or whatever and then you can say okay this is happening again i don't know exactly why but i need to calm down i'm going to say the wrong thing how and um, that person is coming that's not who they are they're coming something like that that calms you down so and then active reach what can i say i can say something like hey this is going to land up in an explosion between us let's just take some mental space let's not talk about this now let's come back to this later or maybe get a mediator or let's maybe text about it or whatever so it's some kind of an action so you could do it in the moment you can also use the neurocycle to focus to build the brain so i've spoken about going from signals detoxing healing the roots and rebuilding but you and uh, re reconstructing so you don't ever eliminate you're not going to get rid of this you can't change a story you can only change what it looks like inside of you so you want this to shrink and you want this to grow. So this part of the tree you want big and eventually you want this small. And that takes cycles of 63 days. So is essentially what we want to do is heal the roots. And in and that's that's the post current biomedical model is talking about an eliminating of a symptom. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes, you eliminate a symptom when it comes to a medical thing. Like, yes, diabetes, you want to eliminate the symptoms of diabetes type 1 by giving the body insulin. That makes sense. But when it comes to mental health, your stories happen. That young man's story is never going away. But what we can do is instead of him being driven by this, we can reconstruct and heal. And so he operates differently and recognizes his triggers and therefore moved to becoming a pillar of the community versus a destructor of the community. That requires time and work. So the other side then is the building where we can learn stuff. So education, you go to school, you learn, you learn stuff. What is the best way to learn? It's the same neurocycle can be used from the other end. I take that, that history or that social studies or whatever it is that I'm learning and you apply the five steps as a learning tool. So there's also the whole learning tool, which I have a book called Think, Learn, Succeed, where I teach you how to do the neurocycle as a learning tool. Um, and then we're adding that into the app as well with visuals and so on. Um, and then the other side of the building is, let's say that building part of the neurocycle, let's say that you 
just happen to be sitting there working and this great memory pops in your head, this great thought with all of its memories of maybe a loved one and a great event. Don't just gloss over that. Grab it. Take 30 seconds and do a neurocycle. Grab it and say, how do I feel? How does my body feel? You know, go through the sequence. That means you've just made it stronger. And in making it stronger, you've increased your brain, mind, body resilience. And so when you do get hit by the inevitable messes of life, you're going to be that much more resilient in dealing with them. So that's kind of how you would use all of it together. See, this every time I dive into your work, I'm having this experience now listening to you. I get um, simultaneously crazy optimistic at what are what we're capable of managing. Yeah, and so frustrated that why are we not given these tools as you know as young adults? I, and I'm going to cite something from your research. It, it's it's something like what is it? Uh, I'm looking at the number here. Half of mental disorders are underway by our mid-teens and yet here we are as full-grown adults talking about tools that most of us have never heard of and it's again this is why i guess this is the complex part of being human right you can both be simultaneously crazy optimistic of oh my gosh i can learn through super basic skills how to manage my mind and Dear God, why have we not been taught how to do this? Arguably, it's the most important thing. If if the quality of your thoughts and your mental state is reflective of the quality of your life, why are we not taught how to manage this stuff? Exactly. That's exactly why I do what I do. And that's what I've been fighting this battle. And I've worked in schools, in education, in across the field. And that's why I now didn't just don't just practice because I can only reach limited amount of people. Mm. So I agree with you. And the art that's so thank you for having me on your show to make more people aware of this. And uh, Chase, this is why I wrote this this particular book for mm. two to ten or um to help two to ten year olds because my youngest patient was two year old. I've taught two and three year olds how to do the neurocycle. So I felt it's, you know, and I did work with parents such a lot, in, as I said, in education and a lot of schools, um, even in this country um, and in through across um in throughout South Africa, we lived for years and so on, we showed kids young how to do this. So this book is really, how do I teach my two-year-old up to 10-year-old how to manage the mental messiness and how to, you know, to deal with, give them their tools to tell the story. You know, and it's filled with um, image. We created this, I created this figure, this this little character called Brainy. Can you, I don't know if you can see it. I have the PDF in front of me, yeah. Okay, so throughout you saw Brainy in different, and there's another little picture of Brainy. <laughs> I even have the toy. You've got the toy, Brainy. Oh, <laughs> So cute. This is the first version of him. You're going to have a whole lot more Brainy. So Brainy is a superhero that walks a child through the mental health journey. So in the same way that we pay attention to educating our children with mathematics and whatever, which is important, we need to educate them, as you said, about mind. And the mind, oops, there goes my Brainy on the floor. <laughs> Um, so what I've done in this book is made it really, really simple for breaking down for a parent. How do I teach a child as young as two what a thought is and what an unhealthy thought is and how when someone bullies me and makes me feel sad, how that pent-up energy and what it causes me, how can I, as a child, connect with my human adult parent, my caregiver, to help me understand this? So 
we've had kids like the reason I created the toy as well is because when I was practicing, I'd always have toys in my practice when I worked with little kids and I worked with all age groups from two-year-olds all the way to, to 85 year was 85 year old was my, one of my oldest patients. And I always had toys and kids, as we all know, kids will make toys in act. Mm -hmm. And very often it's the only emotions that are coming out. So they transfer. So by having this point of contact, Brainy, if as deliberate as we are about cleaning, teaching our kids to clean their teeth and, pack their bag and go to school and tidy their room. We need to be as deliberate about mind. So if they're battling with something, whether it's with a sibling, a teacher, a friend, whatever, brain is my point of contact. I can say, okay, a child, we've had two-year-olds. They don't know how to say it, but they'll pick up the toy and go to their mom. Then the mom or the dad knows there's, this child's trying to talk to me. And then you can follow the system and teach the child the system. And what and I, I, give, it, I give you in the book really simple how to teach mm -hmm each age development the stages you've seen in the, in the book these pictures throughout the kids can point to the pictures with a non-verbal child you can literally use the pictures to help a child and then obviously you speaking as the parent using toys using pictures i'll give you a multitude of ways of doing it one thing that's always worth doing is setting up a little want of a better word a neurocycle center or a brainy brainy place because they relate to this sort of thing and that's an area in your home it becomes a deliberate area. Like you go to the bathroom in the bathroom and you clean your teeth. You don't clean your teeth in the middle of the dining room. You clean your teeth in the bathroom because there's a sink. In other words, these you go to the gym, you eat in the, you know, you eat at the table. That concept we must get into a child's mind as well is that when when we have this mind issue that is big that I want to talk about, I go to that place in the house if possible. And that could be like an area in your kitchen, like my sister-in-law painted one wall of her kitchen with that chalk a chalk paint so and there was always chalk little box toys papers and that's that was their point of contact so if a child's having a hard day they can come and pick up brainy and they can sit over there and then that's your trigger to start sitting with them and say hey you had a bad day tell me about brainy does brainy want to tell me and you can then go through you're not going to say gather awareness to a two-year-old <laughs> and you say how does brainy feel where's brainy saw in his tummy you know yeah. brainy's got a you know, they'll point and that way you you walk them through and you mm -hmm. teach them a very systematic way and the child be wiring that in. So the more you do it, the more they know how to do it. And then you do it. The best way to help your child, mm. people ask this question all the time, the best way to help your child is for you to help yourself. It's that oxygen mask principle. Yes. Learn the cycle for yourself as a parent. As, as you said, there's both these books. You'll find this very helpful to learn the system for yourself as a parent. Um, get into the app, whatever, however you want to do it, and be honest about your own emotions. So if you come home and you have a bad day and you open the door and the kids' toys are everywhere and you trip over the toys and you yell at them and just everything, you just explode and do all the things you shouldn't do as a parent and that we just do, um, you don't have to then just sort of pull away or try and cover up. You actually sit down in your neurocycle corner or on the couch or whatever and just say, oh, my gosh, I yelled. I was frustrated. So you, you go through the neurocycle. You literally make the little sentences. I did this because of this. And then you could draw some pictures or write something on the little chalkboard or in, on a piece of paper. But you know what? This happened because of this. And this is what I'm going to do. And my action, I'm going to sit now. I'm going to have some, we're going to make dinner together. And I'm going to hear about your day. And that'll make me much better. And I'll be able to help my uh, man handle my own day. And in that process, you say, I'm so sorry. I should not have yelled at you. This is why I yelled at you. And, you know, whatever. Um, so, I mean, that's, they. you do that. You're showing a child 
hey, mommy and daddy also, or granny, whoever it is, they also get upset. It's okay. There's nothing invalidating the fact that as humans, no matter what the age, bad things happen and we get upset. But there's a way of dealing with that. And so you're teaching them that message and you're giving them the tools to tell that story and equipping them with how to deal with that issue. And they transfer it. We're even writing a storybook. We've created the universe of Brainy and mm. we have storybooks that you can actually read to your children mm. uh, that then take Brainy through these different journeys. And the first one is not really yet, but it's, it's in edit is about bullying and about a whole character, whatever. So, I mean, this, but this is a great start. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to try something. I'm going to try and summarize a handful of con the constellation of areas that we have, you know, come through in our conversation here that his, and, and there's a little bit, I'm going to try and tie some to the work. You've got the app, which is very, very rich and immersive and you can go to drleaf.com, but to, to try and recap the idea that we all have mental mess, that's part of being human. And in your universe, there's a neuro cycle, five, I would say science based steps that you can practice very simple steps that you can practice to learn how to, in a healthy way, manage your mind. We also understand that the reason we have to, largely the reason that we have to you know, manage our mind is because being human is difficult, Going, growing up, having a childhood is a difficult thing, and we all need to learn how to manage that. The reality is that very few of us have been given these tools, so we need to actually spend time researching. And again, I think you've put it in a very, very, several very, very tiny packages, but that this is a incredibly worthwhile, valuable uh, activity to pursue as a human being. And in doing this, you uncover your own historical problems, challenges, the difficulties of being a human, largely formative years where most of that stuff really takes root. And now in your most recent book, How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess, A Guide to Building Resilience and Managing Mental Health, is you have a responsibility, or we all do, to the next generation to help that generation be better off than we were and help your child be better off than you were, specifically by giving them these tools. Now, and and the, fi the final phase here, as I'm trying to track this, is and the best way to, to sort of support this training for your child is to practice yourself. This is how we are going to... Um, again, I'm, I'm trying to summarize, you know, what I understand and the impression that your work has made on me into, you know, 90 seconds here, but the, it is this sort of universe of things that a, it's possible B it's a skill that is learnable, practicable, improvable, and that it has insane value for the quality of our life. So That's give good. me a, is that a thumbs up or sideways or down? Would you add anything to that? Thumbs up. You did it better than I could. You did a brilliant job. Okay. Now we'll just put a pin in that because there's got to be something that I'm missing. What is the most obvious thing in your you know, field of research that we can look at today or that's often overlooked or what is the most sort of what's missing from that pie that I just described? 
you did such a brilliant job. I think the only thing is the emphasis on mind being separate from the brain and the mind being the priority that we spend. We're very focused on, um, you know, healthy eating and exercise and even the mindfulness, but that's kind of getting pretty good at that in, in, in our, in our current sort of day and age. But the mind is very neglected. It's it's a it's it's kind of been uh, it's the that thing that the psychiatrists deal with. Meanwhile, it's not. It's something that is you. It's you. And and to understand that without managing your mind, it, it just life just becomes so much more difficult than what it actually needs to be. And that and I say that not to say that we need to be avatars because that's ridiculous. We're not going to be. We're not robots. Part of the enjoyment of life is actually being able to accept the depression, to, to accept the days when you're sad, to accept what you can't understand, to accept that not all relationships are going to work out, to accept that there will be people that do not understand you, that don't like you. You know, all these things to find peace in the midst of chaos is one of the most incredible things to, to experience because then we can operate in, in to get all you know sort of philosophical we can truly operate from love because mm-hmm. at the end of the day our relationship with ourself is going to be reflected in our relationship with others mm. and you know, that's really i think an ultimate goal of this system that i've developed is to understand why the mind is just so important that without understanding that we won't achieve this level of peace and love that is at the underlying foundation of every movie, every book, every human's desire. The idea of how we manage the relationships that we have with others is a reflection of how we manage the relationship that we have with ourselves. That is very, very powerful. I literally got chills when you said that the hair stood up on my arms and the back of my neck. I'm Um, actually writing a book on that. That's one of the books (laughs) that's coming out on exactly that statement. So. Well, to say that we have scratched the surface here in 90 minutes, I wish I, I mean, again, your, your body of work is, you're so prolific and you've added so much um, value to the world through your books uh, and teachings and research and again, the app and a lot of this, I want to just take a second and recap specifically working backwards cleaning up your mental mess is how I worked into or got into your work. Five simple scientifically proven steps to reduce anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking. The work that has just now been released is how to help your child clean up their mental mess, a guide to building resilience and managing mental health. Obviously, you've hinted at several other things that are emerging. And again, thank you for being- Coloring, coloring book, of course. Of course, you've got Rainy, a coloring book. Rainy and friends, so they can get all these different scenarios and they can color it in and talk about it. <laughs> uh, I, I really, if you are listening to the show or watching it right now, I cannot recommend your work enough. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Is there anywhere that you know, you'd like to direct our audience's attention that I haven't mentioned recently? Or, or uh, I mean, I think drleaf.com is a really good place. L-E-A-F is a good place to start, but you've probably got something better. Where Anything where you'd point us? That's great. And then the, just my social media handles, Dr. Caroline Leaf. So there's a lot of stuff on there. There's always little tips and tips and things that are helpful. And um, I've got my podcast is actually called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. 
So I need to have you on the case. I need to have you interviewed. So, <laughs> so you've got you've done so much amazing work. Thank you again for being a guest on the show, and to everyone out there, highly recommend this. Um, I have been uh, chasing, you know, my relationship with myself for decades through this model of being able, learning how to to manage my mind. And when I again I stumbled on your work, it just was. Like this is a package that I feel like is ready for the world to consume. So thank you again so okay. much. And and from, from, from uh, Dr. Carolina, myself, to everyone out there in the world, uh, we bid you a great day and adieu until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Mm-hmm.